The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. to our fourth day, our fourth episode this week. This is The Brandon Peters Show. Today's episode will feature a discussion on William Friedkin's 1977 film, Sorcerer. And to join me for that chat, from Reverend Entertainment, a writer, producer, just filmmaker, and all-around good guy, Justin B. Hey, man. Thanks for having me back on. It's been too long. I know it has, but we keep in touch throughout the year, but it's like, yeah. oh, need to have you on. Okay, yeah. And then this month later, it's like, oh, yeah, need. I'm like, it's crazy. It was a blast last time, man. I really appreciate it. And it's been so exciting to see your momentum that you've had with this. It just keeps growing and growing and going and going. So you're really, you're hustling. I, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm still alive. And I'm yeah. still, I, I make short films like once a week. I don't know how. And multiple episodes of the podcast. Don't know how. Don't yeah, know man. how. Keep don't it up. Know. But I love it. I love it. Uh, hopefully people get on the train. Um, great guests like you have been. 50% of the reason it's so good because... Yeah, I mean, I'm only half the show when I'm on, so well, I'm always on. <laughs> it's your baby. It's, it's your my baby. baby. It's my baby. But uh, I love the people I have. The, the Brandon Peters show family has been a wonderful thing to have. Every one of you. Uh, but yeah, you've uh, since then. You, I mean, you keep like huge title after huge title. For those if you're just checking out this first time, Justin does bonus features for a lot of your favorite Blu-rays out there uh, with under the Reverend Entertainment banner. Um, You've been having like a lot, like you, you did. He knows you're alone, which was like a long time wish list title. Like you did yeah. some, just a lot of stuff on that one. Um, it was a good disc. I like Thanks, that one. man. Yeah, that that turned out really nice. Uh, one of the one of like we've talked about Shop Factory and stuff in the past, but like I want to bring up because I think it was early on in the the era of it when it first came out with the Paramount Presents, mm-hmm. which you were you were part of like pioneering that, right? You were in the early days of launching. I was in at the beginning. It's uh, the, Todd Sokolov, the head of marketing. It's really his baby. And he wanted, he came in realizing that there was this untapped treasure in the archives and these, mm-hmm. what they referred to as catalog titles generally at the yeah. studios. And Paramount has kind of been famous historically for underserving a lot of movies. I think any Friday the 13th fan can speak to that. Star so Trek ta- as well. <laughs> they, Star they, Trek is, yeah. yeah, which now they're getting though. See, like mm-hmm. it's, and that Star Trek release just came out and so uh todd got in there and he just started right away hey guys this is a cool project that i think we could do something with he put the wheels under it and then they reached out to me and asked me to come on board and that's expanded into doing first run epk and doing straight release like regular catalog releases like bad news bears and Mm -hmm. The Last Castle and a few other ones that weren't part of the Presents line, mm-hmm. but Presents is a concept. It's a really a it's a fully realized visual, sensory, and presentation with the film concept to remaster these movies, put them in a nice slipcase, the the cover this O cover with the original poster art when you open it up, beautiful new graphics on the front usually on all of them, and then 
some putting these special features in there. And some of these we've been able to really pack with a lot of good stuff. It's been fun. Yeah, I, I've really liked watching it grow. Um, and it's some of my favorite releases every month. And it's fun to watch those. Those announcements have become really exciting. Um, like Harold and Maude, as we're recording today, just got announced. Uh, that I didn't had no idea that was coming. I was, yeah, that was hard to bite my tongue on on that one. And I have a great story about. So for that one, I did commentary with Cameron Crowe and Larry Karaszewski. And Larry's the writer of People versus Larry Flint and Ed Wood. So many amazing films. And you know Cameron Crowe. And Cameron had written the liner notes to the Criterion release that came out years ago. Okay. So yeah. two passionate fans about the film. Cameron can speak to the musical aspect of it and the importance of that. And they both were just amazing in this commentary. But then also I interviewed Cat Stevens, now known as Yusuf Islam, mm-hmm. and from Dubai. And it was a fascinating discussion. And I have this great story behind that one, but it ties to another release that we haven't announced yet, so I can't share it yet, but I can't wait to tell it because it's totally insane. You're going to have to come back for that. Absolutely. When, when it comes so, out, I will let you know this is the one and I okay. have the story because I definitely want to tell it. Cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, yeah the, these, uh, you've worked with Cameron Crowe. He's been on a lot. You've got Almost Famous recently that got up to 4K, mm-hmm. um, the Elizabeth Town, and then Vanilla Sky's coming, and then he's right. on this Harold Amad commentary, so he's... yeah. Been all over the presents line, and so is Larry too. Because I had Larry for, um, I just did Ragtime with Larry, okay. and the writer of Ragtime, Paul Weller, got them together on a common, not a, not a commentary, but it's an on-screen discussion with the two of them. Oh, cool! Just talking to each other because this is a Milos Forman film. Mm-hmm. They were both very close to Milos and had years of working with him in very unique ways. And so it's really a one of a kind discussion that wouldn't be possible anywhere else right. and with anyone else other than these two guys who have walked in those same shoes in, in a way, two writers, you know, talking shop about a very beloved filmmaker and one of his most under celebrated movies in some ways, if you think about ragtime. And then yeah. for that one, we were able to find a, all the cut scenes we're able to find the Emma Goldman piece that, or sequence that that Milos always mourned being removed mm. from the film. But once we got into the archives, we started discovering more and more and more. And so now there's like 20 cut scenes that are in this thing. And we have a work print cut with a lot of that reinstated into the movie, too. I need to pick this one. I didn't get this one. I need to pick that one up. It's uh, wild. It's so great. They, I, I have. I'm behind on. Like, I don't have uh, Bugsy Malone. I don't have Ragtime and Nashville. I think those are three. I don't. Bugsy just came out though. So yeah. that one, yeah, that just came out. And that was a fun. I did Paul Williams on that one. Mm-hmm. Oh. And he and and he was. It was a beautiful conversation. He was like singing and. Oh, that's great. Oh man, it's so good. Uh, it was so special. I have coined, and I just reviewed Breakdown, which is like a perfect disc. Thank you. Thing, that Thank is you. that is the ideal for a guy. Like I don't have as much time as I used to back. I yeah. mean, we all don't. But that yeah. thing is lean in the most perfect ways. Uh, transfer on is great, but like the bonus material was like, I mean, you could just plow through. You could go through that disc in a day. But it's it's tight, but it's rich with material, like good stuff there. And, Thank you. Uh, that was that was yeah. so fun, man. And it was hard to have breaks on that one. And eventually mm-hmm. they kind of had to say stop. But it was great. We have the alternate opening, which I yeah. com- I completely agree with Jonathan, the director, Mostow, on why that was cut. Because he's like, I didn't want nothing. this anywhere near my film. Yeah, it was completely unnecessary. And and then, I mean, interviews with you know, the new commentary with Kurt Russell yeah. 
and Jonathan Mostow getting Kurt for a commentary was amazing. Yeah. Like the day we were all on pins and needles in case he didn't show up or something on the day of the recording and he drives onto the lot and it's like, it's like phone tag. Like he's here, he's here, he's here. Like everybody's all rejoicing because he had shown up and then he gets in there and he just had a blast and man, it's just such, so good. Martha De Laurentiis, who most people haven't Mm -hmm. ever seen interviews with before Dino's wife, widow. And then um, Kathleen Quinlan, uh, another interview with Jonathan about just the film and its legacy and its history and production. So many great stories. I am so proud of that release. Thank you for the words. No. uh, And the funny thing is like, you don't have an on-camera interview with Kurt Russell, but the people you got paint this wonderful picture of him. That's like awesome. And it's like, I'm just like, wow, I get why his marriage has lasted and works or his relationship with Goldie has worked. And I, you know, I, I, there was one story and I'm not going to spoil it about, the kid who was a child actor in movies uh, growing up and like that's his life and you get get that that's his a life right. for him uh, with right. the little story I think Martha De Laurentiis tells it um, yeah. but I was just like oh that's adorable and mm-hmm. really nifty or no yeah. it, was, it was Kathleen Quinlan's story that's her, it's her story well uh, and well Mar- Martha had a little bit about it too yeah. but Kathleen is the one who spoke to that moment yes. where she yeah that's yeah, cool. But that's a like pick people should pick it. Well, it's a great movie for one. That was a it's funny, it's one of those forgotten number ones at the box office, kind mm. of, where yeah. like it's time passed it by, but I'm like, it's a great movie. It's awesome. every, every but when it comes up, everybody who's seen it loves it. Yeah. It's not a movie that has people who are kind of like, eh, people are, oh man, I that was really good. Like the tension in that mm-hmm. just ratchets up. And the way Mostow handled that, the pace of the film, it never slows down. You never get bored with it. And Kurt is just incredible. And it helped that he did most of his own stunts right. too in the picture, which is crazy. There's so many great stories on there about it. But he came right off Escape from LA yeah. and walked directly <laughs> into this film. Snake Plissken shaves, shows up as the guy in the khaki pants and stuff in Breakdown. And it's just kind of mind-blowing to think about that transition that he made from one character to another because he so perfectly embodies sort of the everyman in this film. That's why I think that alternate opening did his character a bit of a disservice if right. it would have been in there because it's too much. We don't need more on him. Jeff is perfect as he is. Kurt Russell's amazing. Kurt Russell's amazing in everything. Well, and I also, I, in my review, I pointed out like Kathleen Quinlan, we only get like a couple scenes and a couple minutes with her at the beginning, but there's, she gives so much from yeah. so little time that you, that helps to add that you want to find her, you want her to be alive and you can't wait to see her again. You're in yeah. Kurt's shoes because of what she's bringing. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's such a, yeah, pick up that release, breakdown. Yeah, some That's great behind-the-scenes stuff on there. Yeah, yeah thank you, you. you. Yeah, you've got a lot of great, I like, yeah, those Paramount Presents are true gems. Um, every, and I think they've improved every every release they've come out uh, since since the start. But I, I look forward to those every single month. Yeah, and there's a lot of great releases coming up here, so you'll yeah. have to stay tuned, man. Very exciting, very exciting. Um, but yeah, I, I look forward to more that you have coming down the pike from shout factory and paramount and yeah you've done some things for the others too right blue uh, have you done anchor all right arrow anchor bay years ago arrow i'm starting for soon okay yeah i i did a i sort of helped some a guy i know with a commentary a few years ago on an arrow release but i um officially working for them starts next year and doing some stuff i i do for vinegar syndrome that was it okay and it's yeah. a lot of editing for them now, too. They'll send me stuff just to cut together. Like, in fact, tomorrow, as we're recording here, Blades comes out on Blu-ray, which is an old trauma 
it's just so much fun. It's it's a really genuine loving tribute to Jaws mm-hmm. in the cheesiest, most awful and wonderful ways. It's it's worth the trip if you haven't seen Blades, but that was a fun one to cut. Like they just send me everything and then I assemble it. Nice. Made a documentary on it. So the, the vinegar stuff is fun to cut together. It's cool. fun. Uh you, you had that story about Kurt Russell showing up for the the deluxe thing it reminded me when I worked in the uh, I, back when I worked at Burbank, I worked in the deluxe building. Mm-hmm. And there was there was a day where um, Pacino was coming to record a commentary on something, mm-hmm. and we got put on notice that from this time to this time you were, and this time to this time, like certain times you were not to leave your office, you were not to go in the oh, halls, yeah. you were not like like you couldn't nothing like when he got there, he nobody was even allowed to be around. Yeah, when he left. Nobody was allowed to be around. I was like, okay, well, I guess Al Pacino's in the building today, but who would know? Yeah. I heard that years ago. There's a friend of mine that worked at, I think it was either the first or one of the early official KISS conventions Mm -hmm. that they had. And and he helped dress out one of the rooms with the costumes or the room with the costumes in it. And so they were putting him on mannequins and having it set up for different eras and stuff like that. And then they got word that Gene and Paul were going to come through to approve everything. And they said, when Gene, when, when Gene and Paul walk in, you all can be working, but you need to stop when we say that they're about to walk in. And then you need to turn around and face away from them. So don't, don't look at them. Don't make eye contact with them. And this guy, I worked with him in a record store and the kiss is his life. He was in a kiss mm-hmm. tribute band. He has Paul, a, a, a real Iceman Ibanez. I mean, he was really vested into a lifetime of Kiss love. And then he can't even look at these guys when they walk in the room. I still love Kiss. I'm a huge fan myself. But that story to me was just like, man, why be why be like that? Why why do that? Oh, that's like, oh gosh. Not we're trading stories here, but um yeah. so my wife in town here with her sister, she co owns a um nightclub known for like burlesque dancing and stuff called the mm-hmm. White Rabbit Cabaret. And one time they had uh, the Jake the Snake tour with Hacksaw oh. Jim Duggan came by oh boy. and so we we went to we went to that and yeah. Jake the Snake when it there was like people got this they paid for this pass for this VIP thing and they were supposed to get a picture and his autograph oh, well no. when Jake the Snake got there he said no you get a picture or an autograph and and there were like grown men crying people like I don't know which to do and just all the it was pandemonium and we we're this these grown men in their 40s and 50s like just either upset trying to make life decisions about Jake that it oh, was man. it was crazy I'm like this is this guy's hero yeah I interviewed him years ago I yeah. did a piece the uh, cover article for Fangoria and Alice Cooper and mm-hmm. so I had this great sidebar it was actually too big to eventually it didn't even make it in the magazine because there was too much it was too big mm-hmm. but I interviewed all these people that were a part of Alice's life, like John Carpenter, oh yeah, Jake the Snake Roberts, a bunch of different people who he had done films with and whatever over the years. And the Jake interview was just not at all what I expected. And now I look back and I've seen that there's a documentary about him called like The Resurrection of Jake the Snake or something. Okay. Have you seen that? No, I heard, I've heard about it. I haven't seen it. But. He had bad addiction issues and stuff yeah. like that. But I realized after seeing that a few years ago that at the time when I talked to him, he was just in the bottoming out throes of addiction and mm. his family had been dismantled. But I, I had that conversation with him, not at all expecting to get this heavy lesson in child abuse and all this other stuff because oh, he went geez. into some deep, dark territory and I was talking to him and I'm just doing this sidebar about Alice Cooper. 
So <laughs> it was kind of, t- it was almost a little terrifying to have yeah. the discussion with him just because I felt so bad. Right. I felt terrible for him. And those, oh my gosh. Like, what do you have been through? And I'm like, what do I, what do I do with this? And then it didn't even end up getting published, which was a bummer. But anyway, that's, that's my Jake the Snake story. <laughs> he met John at WrestleMania three. Oh, really? Jake the Snake met because John went, John's a huge wrestling fan. Yeah. And he went to WrestleMania three. Alice Cooper was at WrestleMania three appearing with Jake because the snake connection and all that. I, I don't know if I think Alice was in town on tour or something. And so he wanted to, anyway, they worked out being a part of it. And so just so happens that backstage was John Carpenter and he bumped into Alice Cooper and was like, I'm a huge fan. I'd like to see you in concert. They see him in concert. Then John's like, that was really great. You did this impalement gig during your live show. Can we do that in a film? I'm shooting this movie. I'd love to do that in it. And it was leading up to Prince of Darkness. And that's so ultimately Prince of Darkness was born in a way. Alice Cooper being in <laughs> Prince of Darkness was born out of WrestleMania three. Oh, Jake great. the Snake to, to Prince of Darkness. There's a story. for. <laughs> and when it came to They Live, he chose Roddy Piper. And he chose Roddy Piper in John Carpenter's office. If yeah. you go to his office in Los Angeles, he doesn't have a lot of memorabilia stuff around. He has mm-hmm. scripts and he has lots of books and posters for his movies and things, but from other people, he doesn't have a whole lot except for a signed Roddy Piper figure, the GI Joe Roddy, Roddy Piper figure. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. He has one of those signed from Roddy to John up on his shelf in his office. Yeah. That's how big a fan he is. That's Oh, wow. Yeah. That's his non Lakers sport that he goes for. Totally. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Um, Well, we will move on to Sorcerer. In 1971, William Friedkin directed The French Connection. It received five Academy Awards, including Best Picture of the Year. In 1974, he directed The Exorcist. It made history. Since then, Friedkin has spent over two years in five countries on three continents, creating his latest film, an unusual adventure into the realm of suspense. also a death. Four men take an incredible chance, face an impossible challenge, and risk the only thing they have left to lose. Roy Scheider, in a new film by William Friedkin. Sorcerer, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. directed by William Friedkin, uh, written by Waylon Green from the novel The Wages of Fear by George uh, Arnaud, starring Roy Scheider, Bruno Kremer, Francisco Rabal, Amadou, Joe Spinell, and Anne-Marie Deschaut. It's uh, about four unfortunate men from different parts of the globe agree to risk their lives transporting gallons of nitroglycerin across dangerous Latin American jungle. Uh, so this is um, So this week on the show... And we're on Thursday now. Uh, I've it's been uh, uh, unique favorite films of mine to 
reflect on uh, the past year with guests always bringing a new, a new, uh, a unique film of theirs that's a favorite. This one, Sorcerer, is probably my favorite of all these this week. Mm. Easily. Wow. What else is on the lineup, if you don't mind my Oh, asking? it was, uh, we had Blood and Black Lace on Monday, Bucktown Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, Sound of My Voice. Tried to get oh, cool. different eras and stuff in there. Nice. So, Real diverse, man. Yeah. Tried to yeah. try to try to do that. But uh, yeah. Sorcerer, and Sorcerer hasn't been with me that long. That's the thing. I first saw this in 2014 when it came out on Blu-ray. Mm. It was a new-to-me film from that year, and it hasn't left my mind since. Yeah. It just stuck with me, and I probably watch it one to two times a year. And I don't wow. get the chance to go, always go back to films like that, but mm-hmm. I don't know what this is with this film. I wanted to watch it earlier, but I had found I snotty here. It was always four by three, cropped, pan and scan, mm-hmm. yeah. and just a bad transfer. There were some rights issues with this film that Freakin mm-hmm. lost the rights, the studio lost the rights, who knew where they were. And he finally, in like 2013 or something, got them back, restored it, put it back out. Um, properly um, with a Blu-ray from Warner Brothers, but I didn't see it till 2014, but I did, and it's been a powerhouse for me since. So I would love to hear, I mean, knowing all that, hearing that, I got to tell you, I've never seen the movie before. Right. I hadn't, I hadn't seen it prior to this, but I ordered the same Blu-ray that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So I've seen it as it should look, which is great. Right. And it looks amazing. I mean, it's a beautiful Blu-ray. Hearing that, when you first watched it, what was your initial impression of it? Like, what did you walk away with? Or was it an immediate sort of acknowledgement of attraction to this thing or fascination with it? What was it? It was, there was like a feeling that I I was just into it. I felt the one thing I, I was impressed with the production of it. Like Mm -hmm. that was one big thing. I'm like, how did nobody die making this movie? Yeah. Um, It looked, even on my screen I have at home, it felt like I was in a theater. It feels huge. And if I had a if I had a choice of a movie to reformat for IMAX and show it as big as possible, I'd love to see this that way. That yeah. and that the shining uh would be oh, great man. to 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 see that way as well. Uh yeah. but this is up there with that in terms of seeing it and it just I love movies where a direct because this is his I one best director for French Connection. I just made one of the most profitable movies ever with The Exorcist. Here's his blank check movie. And mm-hmm. I love when to see what a director can do. And this is the 70s when these guys were running the town. Yeah. And I love it when they just go unhinged. And this was his crazy, I'm going to do what I want. And Freakin was already a frictional kind of director. Sure. Anyway. And this is what he came up with. And it's just unhinged. It's. There's something real about it. Um, there's suspense. There's just, I don't know. Technically, I think most of it was like, I can't believe someone made this. Like, this is asking a lot of everyone involved in the film, from your actors yeah. to your tech people, mm-hmm. to just probably the catering for coming down to where they were shooting. And I just can't believe it's all in film, that nobody died. It looks dangerous. It looks impressive. Yeah. And and the movie bombed. <laughs> but yeah. Um, well, it came out the week after Star Wars, I yeah, think. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. suffered a, an ugly fate. This kind of cerebral darkness yeah. doesn't really play well. It reminded me in some, it reminded me of a number of films. It reminded me primarily what came to mind is Deer Hunter, mm. tonally, okay. and with the, the way that the, 
the conflict between people is handled, what mm-hmm. violence there is, the way that it's handled very realistically yeah. throughout the whole thing. It's frank presentation of the resonance and the repercussions of things like gang involvement, um, war, mm-hmm. religion. There's so much in play here. So he's when you talk about it being his here's a blank check movie, he's putting a lot into this. He's, yeah. he's really cramming a bunch of genres into one film. And what I loved about it and watching it, I know I'm sure we'll get there, is that this thing takes several very direct left turns. It becomes a different movie twice Yeah, as you're watching it. So it begins as one thing, then transitions to something else, and then transitions to something completely different, which blew me away. Yeah. So it's such a strange film. It's such a unique thing. I can see why you love it and why you're fascinated with it. Yeah. And it, I mean, it even has the weirdness of the first image of the movie is kind of like him going, yeah, I'm the guy who did the exorcist. Like it's got the yeah. demonic rock thing Yeah, where it's like, yeah. Hey, remember me? Let's yeah. go on a ride again or something like that. Well, well, I remember reading something about this years ago. I've known of it for mm-hmm. a while, but I've never, but I just hadn't taken the time to seen it, see it. But I remember reading that there was some controversy about him just him being there where they were shooting. Cause they shot in Mexico. I think right. a lot of this film. And I remember reading about the fact that he had a hard time with some locals. Once they found out who he was, they were superstition or superstitious about him even being in their presence, being in their town, being right. in their villages and stuff like that. That's how big the exorcist was. It turned this man into a demon in some parts of the world. That's remarkable. Right. Yeah. And the exorcist, I mean, there's a huge factor with The Exorcist that I never had contemplated before. I read this book called The Big Goodbye, which came out a year or two ago. Hmm. Uh, chronicles primarily uh, making Chinatown, but um, hmm. it covers kind of the era. And there's a point where The Exorcist becomes the gigantic hit it was. Hmm. And they're all like, and someone at a studio is like, it's over. Like, things are never going to be the same. They're like, why? Like, we used to live on our own out here in California. The people in New York... The people over there seeing the money that these, a movie can make with this one, mm. and they're going to want to make, they're going to come here and they're going to, ch- and that's kind of how it was. It, it, I don't, the movie, the book kind of sounds like it's pointing a finger and blaming The Exorcist, but that's the one that caught people. Cause I don't think people realize that that movie would have been bigger than any of our big movies now if you inflate it. Yeah. Like it's that I big. Bet. And he was, yeah, he was a household. He wasn't with the film brat guy or the, uh, film school brat guys, but he got thrown in with them. Mm-hmm. Um, the Coppola and Lucas and all them. Like he right. started a company with Bogdanovich and Coppola, and the weird, bitter kind of karma. Like Coppola wanted them to produce Star Wars, and Friedkin and Bogdanovich turned it down and said, "Nah, this ain't gonna do anything." Wow. And then guess what kills his big opus? Yeah, here, which was a very hyped up movie for that summer. People were looking forward to it, but then Star Wars came out and kneecaps it and it's history. Yeah. Even the Blu-rays bare bones, the one that I got, it's got like yeah. nothing on it. And I'm like, there's no one to want to talk about this thing. There's so uh, yeah. many fascinating elements to it from production design to the logistics of the locations and everything. Right. So it's wild. There's a big story. And his book, the Freakin connection, which I, I recommend it's, uh, he he's quite honest in it, uh, but he kind of brushes over this one. Really? It's not as much as I would have liked. He goes into good detail on cruising, which I would have thought that would have been the one he skipped over, mm. but he brushes over this one quite a little bit. But Well, that film's discussed. I think that cruising is definitely discussed mm-hmm. among people, and it's very much 
I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of evergreen in mm-hmm. its relevance in a lot of ways, but yeah. this one, it, it, I think it's tough to have a film that follows something and I even have it playing over here. That's why I keep sort of glancing over there once in a while. Mm-hmm. It, it's tough to have a, a movie that, that follows something so massive. I think it's right. tough to be the creative behind it in any role. And I think it's also tough to have to sort of own that and then take the next step because it raises the bar so high for you. And I, I, I can see in this film, him pouring a lot of, of uh, commentary on society, on a lot of different elements. And, uh, but yet at the end, I don't know how satisfying this would be to general audiences. I don't know okay. if they're, if they would go to see Sorcerer and get much out of it. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's a big, deep movie, but it's, I think it's, good enough as a thriller it works as a silent film even there's like a lot of it's essentially silent it is essentially i mean there's dialogue and stuff and it opens with it it's true to country where it's subtitled they had to put Mm -hmm. signs outside theaters um after a couple weeks being open being like hey this is not a foreign film you will not hear something in the english language until the 20 something minute mark or Mm. even longer than that because we That's got, interesting. We open with four prologues, which is yeah. interesting. But it's uh, storytelling wise, it's it's marvelous because we now are ahead of the characters in terms of when we get to the crux of the the film, because we know where each of them came from, but they don't. Right. We know what they're all capable of. Yeah. Um. And but but they have no idea. They just mm-hmm. know them face value in this little town yeah. that, that there are but um but yeah they had to warn people all this but yeah it's a film yeah yeah i don't know that they would they would never make it this way today and they had freaking not been the director he was probably wouldn't have got it made that way back then either yeah yeah i, I, I like these pet project movies from mm-hmm. directors i really do i was almost doing a thing on um reds oh, okay we were in preparation forever on it and it's something that I don't know that it is ever going to happen at this point with all the stuff that we had in queue on it for Paramount. But uh, have you seen Reds? Long ago, I worked on uh, one, I think the initial Blu-ray for it or was it a DVD? Has it been on Blu-ray? It was on Blu-ray. It was an anniversary edition okay. like 10 I, years ago. I worked ago. on that one long, like probably 2007 or something like that. I worked oh, okay. on that one. What'd you do? Uh, just a QC quality control um, oh, okay. party. Um, doing a, probably it would have been a linear pass doing that. Yeah, one, but. got it. Well, we, I mean, that's another movie where Warren Beatty. I mean, that was that was his passion project. Mm-hmm. This is something that he had to convince people into, and when and he had these fascinating interviews with all these people that were he referred to as the witnesses in that film. Okay, and and you realize that Reed, the central figure in the movie, played by him. Mm-hmm even though this entire film is about this guy, Jack Reed, the world really didn't know who he was. He -hmm. wasn't a well-known player on the world stage. And so it was a really unique thing to push as a project for him because people are like, who is this again? And even those that, because Warren went around the world, the country mostly, but interviewing these people, he put this sort of cast a wide net saying, if you knew this guy, if you were associated with, communist revolution contact me we want to talk to you and he started interviewing going traveling to these people to interview them in their homes and whatever and i think only maybe four or five of them even know who jack reed was 
So it kind of undermined his concept that he had. He would try to redirect the questions. It's interesting to watch this stuff, redirect the questions back to try to find it. Anyway, that movie is the least obvious thing for a studio to bankroll and then to release. And they still, and everyone still kind of struggles with it now. Everyone being audiences, even Warren, he has these very, he's very passionate about this movie and what should happen with it next what should yeah. be associated with it and what, what he wants to do with all this archival stuff that he has. And the rest of the world is just kind of going like, we don't, we still don't know if this is worth, we don't know if this is like, what can be done with this? How, how viable this would be as a product for people today. So anyway, Friedkin doing this, I think was a, a pretty bold move mm-hmm. to move into this realm and, and make something like this. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, and, and he got his, his, uh, documentary style feel comes into like full effect with this one that he always likes to pat himself on the back for introducing into cinema a lot of time. Um, but with that just grounded, you feel hot where they're at, you feel mm-hmm. the temperature, you feel, uh, the tension and everything. And he's just got little, I mean, little just looks and stuff that are really interesting. Like when, uh, Roy Scheider, when we first see him after he's been transplanted uh, into hiding, mm-hmm. and he gets up in the morning and he goes to wash his hands and he looks out the window and there's a guy looking down at him, and you're like, oh crap, he's you know being spied on. But then we change mm-hmm. perspective to that guy, and that guy is looking at him like he's looking at me. Yeah. But they have, and you get kind of a good sense of this world um, that I really like, um, and I, I don't know, it's there's good character wo- work with. Almost, one would think thin characters, but mm-hmm. I feel that they're pretty rich mm-hmm. um, with what the actors bring to them um, through each of the the four vignettes. The uh, the and things are left ambiguous uh, with some of them, like the the assassin guy, yep, uh, with the mustache. Which uh, I thought this time this time around, I, something hit me with this film that never hit me before. Uh, I don't know if maybe you thought it already once in, but. I was wondering, I was like, was he sent there to kill Roy Scheider? And then he heard of the the job and is like, well, I'll make this money, kill him, I'll bankroll all this stuff and have done my job. Because he comes later yeah. to there. He's the, fir- he's the only one that we see arrive there. We know he's been a hired hitman before. That guy, the mob boss, wants Roy Scheider dead. Here he shows up. And then he never comes back, so that's when the other guys come at the end. So I was like, yeah. I wonder if he was sent there to kill Roy Scheider, because I always thought he was just hiding himself. But then I'm like, well, this that's guy interesting. Like he knows how to get out. this guy looks like he knows how to get out of places. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I was like, this time around, I was like, what if he was sent to kill Roy Scheider? Yeah, but, that's an interesting perspective. I don't think Scheider was the original. I don't think he was the original choice to even star like the, in this. He was like the tenth choice. Uh, Freakin said, like none of it. The only, the only first choice he got was the guy who um, played the bomber. Um, that was it. Everybody else was getting people passing. Hmm. Um, like Steve McQueen was. Oh, that's right. And he wouldn't his write first it. choice. Yeah, and he, he loved it, didn't he? Didn't he actually like really like the script when he read it? Yep, but uh, Freakin wouldn't budge, and he wanted a role added for Ally McGraw. His and, wife, right? Yep. And yeah, he, okay. he's like, there's no spot for her in this. And he's like, well, mm. nope. Uh, a lot of people wouldn't travel to go do this. Like there was, there was some big name. I want, I want to say 
No, it wasn't Cameron Mitchell. Someone, some big name, more seventies based star mm-hmm. that was like, make it in Los Angeles, I'll do it. And he's like, no, I'm going to the real place to do it because Friedkin's big on real. He'll cast yep. real life people. Like one of the guys in the car at the beginning and the escape, uh, the heist with uh, Roy mm-hmm. Scheider, is one of the guys the French Connections kind of based off of and was an on set uh, advisor for that. And he's a real cop. Oh, wow. He, or no, there's like a real crook or something. Copper crook, one of the two. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, he included him in that movie. And he liked, and he, I think he had a real priest in The Exorcist, was one of the cast, I think. Yeah. think so he likes to get that sense of real people being in those roles right well and i think that it's smart ultimately it works in his favor to have Scheider in here because of jaws yeah and because people felt so close to him in that movie mm-hmm. people I mean, you spend the running time of that film essentially just with him it's sort of his story and yeah. and the time that you get to spend with him the way that spielberg so expertly handled that was you're seeing family time, you're seeing work time, you're seeing him fail, you're seeing him make bad calls. See, I mean, it's you see his place in town in the culture there. So he is, to your point, a real he's a real character in a lot of people's minds just based yeah. on that role alone. So him walking into this makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. And he's he's just so one, he's so great. He's so great at natural intensity. When he gets angry, it feels like someone in the room angry. It doesn't feel like an actor putting that on. And I don't know if that's because we feel so acquainted with him or what. Right. He's a phenomenal performer that I just, I miss that there's nobody that, there's no Roy Scheider today. Like he's completely to him, to himself. And like, I feel I didn't realize that till later on going back to getting older. I'm like, man, this guy's brilliant. Um, Mm. But he, um, he was supposed to be Father Karras in The Exorcist, to which, right? To which Friedkin said, "Nah, he's not a lead. He's not a leading man. He's not yeah. a leading man." And then here he is, like, guess what? I'm a leading man now, right? Yeah. Uh, but you know, I was thinking, like, what they do with him in Jaws is similar to what like Toby Hooper does with Craig T. Nelson in Poltergeist later, which is a Spielberg uh, produced thing as well. But that mm-hmm. he's kind of got that thing with um, the family dad guy that they're able to yeah to bring across. But Scheider was the first of such. Yeah, I like that he spends time with those people in that way. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it serves that actor from that point forward. I think that that sort of informs how people embrace them from that point on. And in this film, it's a similar thing. So you're already feeling for him when you see him. Like, you don't really know. And then they put him in a situation where he's not on the right side of the law. Right. And then something incredibly gory happens. And, whoa, left turn. And then we move on to the crux, like the main core of the film when they move into the the trip that whole journey that they go on with the truck, the sorcerer, it's, it it becomes a duel, but it's not man versus another man, man Mm -hmm. versus another vehicle. Although at one point it kind of is, it's really man versus nature. And it's with, with that bomb under the table that Hitchcock liked to talk about, like, you know, the bomb is there. The audience knows it's, knows it's there and every single movement on screen, you're worrying about the fate of them because you know that's present so even if it wasn't just a bridge giving way you know that's in the back there so any moment could become catastrophic for everyone involved and it's it's, yeah it's like the last hour of this movie is a just suspense trip because for the people listening that may have not seen the movie but you like to hear me and justin talk well uh that there's a oil rig that blows up and the only way to stop the fire is to put some dynamite in it 
And the only dynamite they have is old and rickety, dripping nitroglycerin. And any sudden movement will make it explode. And they have to go 200 miles to take it to the oil rig to put out the fire. So they get these two rickety, huge trucks, um, take three boxes of dynamite in each of them in sand in it. And they have to drive this 200 miles through just Latin American jungle and mountains and all sorts of things, hoping... They don't shake and blow up. And they pick four guys who happen to be our four guys from the prologues to do so. And so it's an untrustworthy bunch. They're all some sort of criminals or they aren't as tough as you think they are. Uh, and they got to go through some challenges. Um, and it's it's exciting to watch. Like each one, like the first ones, there's like a, there's like a bridge where they have to go around a corner Mm-hmm. and drive slowly and the bridge is falling apart underneath them apart yeah uh the big one is this river with a mm-hmm. one of those you know those draw bridges they have on playgrounds or whatever but it's all beat up and this thing they took them three months to shoot this mm-hmm. and it's insane to watch just it's on and the poster it, it's yeah in that article that I read some time ago, an interview with him, he, where again, he didn't mention very much about it. Mm-hmm. I remember him saying that this does, that this film had the most terrifying thing in it that he had ever shot in his life. This, like the most terrifying sequence that he ever had to do mm-hmm. was this one on the bridge in yeah. this film. So then there's no question about it when you're watching. It. And that's, that is a, that scene makes you feel, that's the one that's, I think, the most reminiscent for me of Deer Hunter. Okay. One of the things that's most reminiscent because those guys have something kind of similar happen where they're hung up in this river, caught on a bridge and this helicopter is trying to get them. Mm-hmm. And these actors almost died in real life shooting that scene who were in it, John Savage. Um, and I interviewed him for it. And he was just like, it was, it was, it was mayhem. It was mm-hmm. terrifying. And they said, go up there. And then they, the helicopter, when they went to lift it, not to get on a different movie, but they went to fly away the little, what you call it, the runners underneath the helicopter or whatever got caught on the one of the steel braided um, cables that was holding the bridge up. And, mm-hmm. it, and the guys were still on the bridge holding on, like climbing onto the helicopter. And so the helicopter was like, wait, I'm stuck on something. So it just went up and it sort of snapped and the bridge snapped down and shot up. And so that almost got them. And then when they were up in the air, they made them jump out of the helicopter down into the water from, I don't know how many hundreds of feet up in the air. And I talked to, um, oh, the seventies. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, anyway, God. I mean, I, I won't go on about that, but no, when you watch but... this stuff it, it, oh. and then when they, and you know, they're shooting in Mexico mm-hmm. and you know that the regulation around this stuff is so not what most actors are used to working in. Right. And so you just think about how terrifying it must've been for everybody for real. In addition, I mean, on top of Friedkin being terrified of the whole thing yeah and yeah just there you mentioned deer hunter and i I think they share a shot where the one falls through the bridge and goes underwater isn't there like a similar shot in deer hunter where they're at the little i think someone falls through when they're in the uh roulette little entrapment place i think Mm. there might be a similar shot where someone falls and the camera just goes from a little like oh it goes down into the water water. like Yeah. yeah just it was similar movement i'm my mind's going there, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, this does what dual does and that's ratchet up the tension as you're going the entire time. And it, the, the magic in this is, is the nitroglycerin in the back of the truck. And you, because it, yeah, it makes every moment a cliffhanger moment. And they show us little shots of it just shifting a little bit in the sand. You're like, Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, the one of the coolest things too is after the the bridge, there's the there's they come up to a a big law a big tree has fallen, and mm-hmm. guess what? Well, we have dynamite. We have and to blow we can it up. Do it. And the, just the piecing together the MacGyver thinking they have, like cutting the pockets out to like. Like, I don't know. I would ever thought of that with the mm-hmm. sand just slowly giving them time. And it has one of the coolest explosions I've ever seen in a movie. That oh, tree yeah. just. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, when they first arrive on the tree and I don't know if it's Victor or Nino, I don't remember who, but just leans back and looks, sees the tree and just starts laughing. Mm-hmm. Like, like we've made it this far. You got to be kidding me. This Roy is, Scheider course, goes nuts. And he's like, yeah, and he goes absolutely berserk, starts punching the ground. Mm-hmm. He's he loses his mind on it. But that's like this is this is what's going to stop them. They did make it this far. This is what's going to stop them. It's brilliant. And and Scheider starts to unravel then. And that once he's especially alone in the truck, mm-hmm. then it becomes a one like man versus nature kind of a yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. He's back to facing Bruce in a way. It's like the man versus the shark. But this is not just an animal in the in the ocean. This is the entire ecosystem around him, essentially doing bad battle with him, trying yeah. to make him not survive this. Well, they also it's, inc- it's incredible. Man versus man too, because they get there's some mercenary guys yeah. that pull him over and they kill the um, the assassin guy, and mm-hmm. that's a really dangerous moment as well. And that right before he be- goes solo with the man versus nature and the really kooky, because they don't eat. And he's dehydrated and he's, because I was thinking, I'm like, wait, they probably didn't even pack food. Yeah. He's like, hey, let's go. And yeah, that when he runs out of gas and carries to the finish going mad with a beautiful shot of of the, the oil on fire and the dune. Yeah, the dune, yeah. The, the color scheme changes. and Well, that's that left turn. So it goes from, yeah. the, it goes from the beginning, this action film that's set up through these different sequences. And then you move into... Uh, their sort of new identity era mm-hmm. for that final one. And then it's on to the journey, which is this whole battle versus nature and these harrowing situations. But then it takes another sharp turn into this sort of other world mm-hmm. all of a sudden. And then you're starting to question, is this reality? Is this, are we in his head? Did he really die? Cause, yeah. cause free can also toys with the audience with some flashback shots throughout that sequence. Right. Where Scheider's thinking back, well, he could be thinking back and like sort of replaying, how did I get here? How did I end up in this situation where I am? But also it's doing kind of that carnival of souls thing where you start to wonder by that point, yeah. did he really die? And I think that's a brilliant move on Friedkin's part, the way that he handled that. And that it really plays like three movies, the, mm-hmm. the beginning and then that long journey sequence, the bulk of it. And then this whole fantasy psycho, I don't mean to say psychedelic, but he's, he's, um, imagining things all around him and you're in his head almost black and white void of color including his face and then you move out of that so that's a that's a fascinating turn in this film that i did not expect yeah it's it's everywhere it's so many yeah you just don't know where this like as as streamlined as it is point a to point b please get there Mm -hmm. it takes all these turns that you just don't know and the the type of movie it becomes and the different it, it it's definitely does have a lot of different like you said action movies but it's like a bunch of different kinds of action movies can show yeah. up here in this movie as well right and character studies and well that's and that's one of the things Friedkin's so good at and he he leaves you with people mm-hmm. he he trusts the audience to spend time with these people and 
So you're in quiet moments. You're seeing Scanlan, Scheider's character. You're seeing him in, in, in learning his environment, uh, trying to figure out where he is, what resources he has, and just sort of absorbing everything around him when he's like standing in the grove of trees, mm-hmm. when he's starting to have the breakdown and he's looking around just you you spend so much time with him in those moments. I think that's just that's it's a brilliant way to drag us in and to to put us in his in his pocket, really. Yeah. It's it's an ensemble, but he's clearly the lead guy because he's mm-hmm. like maybe the least bad of the he's just a wheelman for yeah. different crime syndicates and stuff, but he gets pinned on for a, a murder at a church. Uh, by the local mob boss. The other guy, one's a you know, one's a freedom fighter type bomber guy, like a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. One is an assassin, and one is uh, probably some more money financial swindling guy. Which is funny because when you get to the the village and stuff with him, it's like he's gonna go on this. He's the pampered Frenchman that's mm-hmm. like, and he's gonna go the tough route job thing. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. It's kind of like Cutthroat's Nine, where everybody is to be distrusted. Mm-hmm. Everybody there, so there's no comfort level with anyone. He's as close as you get because you get to see the most humanity in him because he keeps surviving these things. Once you keep, like, he makes it through this, then he makes it through that. Now, okay, he's got the new. Okay, now he's going to have to do this. It just becomes a you become a cheering section for this guy, mm-hmm. even though he's a criminal. Even yeah. though he, you know, he is what he ultimately is. Yeah. It's the characters of the '70s that they were exploring. Totally. Like I just, I just did a Blu-ray review for a, a new to me, another new to me one I liked called Straight Time with Dustin Hoffman, where he plays mm-hmm. a he plays a uh, guy who just ex-con trying to get himself in society, but like like a drug pulling heists is like his addiction or robbing and stuff, and he starts getting his old band, gang back together. It's very much funny enough reminding me of Thief, the Michael Mann film a bit. Mm. And then I found out Michael Mann did an uncredited rewrite on Straight Time oh. three years before Thief. Interesting. So I'm like, oh, okay, well. This makes sense now. This is proto-Thief. Yeah. Then, but that's a really cool one. But yeah, these are the type of characters, these the anti-heroes, which now we get on TV all the time with like your Tony Sopranos, your Walter Whites. Mm-hmm. Those were the, the film guys of the, the 1970s and you get four of them here basically. Yeah, yeah. Also, what point I can't, I can't go without forgetting? This is the like breakout for well, breakout of the movie bomb, but uh, American breakout for Tangerine Dream. The, oh, love it. Which is I love the score, and that's one thing that draws me into when I. It's not what you're expecting when you see this movie. If you see the trailer, and you look mm-hmm. at it. This is not the kind of score you might be expecting, mm-hmm. but it's brilliant and works oh, yeah. for it, and it blasts off and. Um, yeah, and it's weird. Like, um, it's kind of weird. There's a, there's been rumor. There's a freaking Michael Mann rivalry kind of thing with stuff. Mm. And it's funny because he uses Tangerine Dream. Mann will use Tangerine mm-hmm. Dream. There's the William Peterson thing with Manhunter and To Live and Die in L.A. Mm. They use. It's, it's kind of weird where those two touch upon each other yeah. a little bit. But, um, but yeah, th- this score. I'm a huge fan of Tangerine Dream. And I realized watching it that I knew the music and I didn't had never seen the picture, the film before mm. because of Tangerine Dream. And they're just so great. I mean, even little films that they contribute something simple to like mm-hmm. Dead Kids, which is also known as Strange Behavior. I just, I, I love that score so much in that movie for its simplicity and all that it is and isn't that I 
and then it's not available anywhere. Right. And I even wrote, I went to this, I found like fan message boards years ago, trying to track down some sort of score. Has this been released in any country? Is there vinyl anywhere? Is there anything anywhere for this movie? Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, no, it just doesn't exist. And so I recorded it from my TV years ago and, you know, very primitively. And I had the CD that I would carry and I'd like go on road trips. And it was one of my regular listens is the sort of janky start and stop soundtrack (laughs) that I cobbled off of, uh, like the old school ones where maybe a little dialogue comes in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, you know, and I, and I love that. I remember that I always say the name wrong. Verisande Sarabande, the the big film score releasing label that's done all the Carpenter stuff Mm -hmm. historically. I mean, they're, I always say it wrong, but anyway, they, for a while were doing some of those where it's a sort of natural born killers type approach to these movies where you listen to the soundtrack and it's blending dialogue and it's chronological. So you're experiencing the film in your home or in your car or wherever you're listening. I remember that they did Halloween 1978 is one that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. And they had Alan Howarth going and sort of reverse engineer some sound effects and everything for it, some sound design to make it complete. But you really listen to the film through that kind of soundtrack, which is so neat. Anyway, that's what I did with Dead Kids, Back to Tangerine Dream, because I'm just such a huge fan of theirs. And I love their live stuff where they just wander through these songs and they're all like 20 minutes long. They're, they're really wonderful. Vangelis yeah. and Tangerine Dream are two that I just can never tire of. And frequent companions for my writing over the years, too. There you go. Great atmosphere. I remember after, after I saw this movie in 2014, I, I got the two-disc score for it. Like mm. right right away, I was like, I, I need that, and it was my driving music for so good, quite some time. And I think Tangerine Dream was set to be uh, one of the planets in Hodorowski's Dune when he was producing that in the seventies, mm. and because um, he was going to do different artists, musical artists were going to be different planets or star systems in that movie. So when you went there in that version of Dune, it would be Tangerine Dream. Yeah, I can't remember. Can't remember one of the other ones was a really I think I think Bowie might have been one of the planets. Mm. I'm not sure. But and it's weird, like that production of Hodorowski's Dune doesn't happen, but it breaks off into all these like alien oh, comes from it. That documentary is amazing yeah. about that. Yeah. It's yeah. it's unreal. But uh, it influenced everything, Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. I mean, because they made that lookbook on it. Right. That was really thorough, and they just started handing them out at will to whoever would take them. And next thing you know every it like birth sci-fi it really birthed modern sci-fi for a movie that didn't exist coffee table book of it like some of they need oh i wish they would i would i'd pay more than healthy that's healthy oh man but can you imagine the like giger's estate how much that would probably cost to do it i just there has to be a reason why it doesn't exist because plenty of people still have them yeah and they're they're definitely out there and some of that art has two i think i think he said he has two of them really he does yeah he's got two of them but just oh gosh that'd be great just to look because yeah. you can't look at it like you can't understand Hodorowski's Dune I know I know uh, but, that documentary is amazing anyone just look up it's called that Hodorowski's Dune mm-hmm. buy it don't even rent it just buy it because you're going to want to revisit it for its complexity and the breakdown the brilliant animation that they're using to sort of bring some of it to life through right. some of those some it of the concept me, art I'm like can someone animate Hodorowski's Dune I'll take an animated version yeah. of it please yeah 
which is funny because that documentary, while his Dune like spread out there, there's been so many. We didn't make this movie, but here's a documentary and what we tried to do. Now there's mm-hmm. like there's a one about Superman Lives, yep. uh, which is good, which is really yeah. good. That's a good that, one too. I would have loved for that movie to be made. Make an animated one. Cage yeah, will do it. Cage will do it. He he was the voice. Of, they brought him in to be the voice of Superman on Justice League mm-hmm. for some Justice League movie or something that they did. They, did, they brought uh, him Teen in. Teen Titans be Go. He did, or Teen uh, Titans. That yeah, was it. He did okay. that one, which is a funny yeah. movie. I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that yeah, Tangerine Dream comes from that. Uh, this movie just uh, the the end of the movie. I picked up on like if you'll notice, like Roy Scheider when he arrives at the little tavern, mm-hmm. he's dressed in white, and that's typically mm-hmm. like passing. Like I'm, I'm moving on attire, yeah. Um, which is uh, significant. And then he has that little last dance, and then his buddy, and then one of the mob guys shows up, and you hear a gunshot, and it's over. Yep. But and they and they spare us that moment. Friedkin yeah. spares us the seeing our hero, not hero, our anti-hero, however you want to say right. it, seeing him die, because we spend the whole movie so concerned that he's going to die. Yeah. And when it finally happens, it's kind of interesting that he did that off-screen. Where you're not actually seeing it. You just hear the gunshot. I thought that was poignant. That leaves you sitting there like, Jesus. And now we've survived so much. And this is the way we're going to go. We kind of go like him. We end our relationship with this film the same way he does with this whole experience. He's got this like touching moment. Like he's, he's upset because he, he can't take the money that he's given because he wrote him a check and he needs cash because he's not Juan Dominguez, which is his name mm-hmm. on this in this town. And uh, he's like, I told you I need cash. And then he's like, just looks over and he, he goes to dance with uh, the little woman who works in the tavern. Mm-hmm. And then, then the dark 1970s ending happens, which yeah. it's at the wrong time. Like at right here, it starts with Rocky the year before, but mm. things get more uplifting towards the end of that decade because you have yeah. Rocky, Star Wars, Superman, things start moving up more upbeat mm-hmm. towards the ending where a lot of the 70s were like, this is life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. That was, yeah. Here's deliverance. Deal with it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh like, God. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a it's a bleak ending, but it's a poignant ending, and I think mm-hmm. it it makes a huge statement about kind of man's fall, fallibility, the fact that we all ultimately have to go, and no matter how hard you might toil, no matter how much you might want to, how much you kick back against what you think or the like, whatever the forces are aging us challenging us physically disease whatever it might be like we can defeat a million things but at the end of the day we're all going to suffer the same fate yeah which is kind of what i see as the statement in the end of this film yeah it's a tough ending but it was a it's a heck of a journey um to to watch this film like and i beautiful i I will say like i showed it to my nine-year-old son because i was like "Ah, let's see what he thinks Hmm. wasn't i into the prologue stuff but once they took off in those trucks he changed his tune and was like, yeah. you know, that first hour, I I, I didn't think I, I didn't really like it. But once yeah. they took off in those trucks, that movie was amazing. I was like, all right, cool. So Aww. half of it works for you and you'll yeah. appreciate the other half when you get older, which yep. I'm, I'm doing this weird experiment with him where I'm going to, I'm showing him vertigo at different points in his life. So I, mm. I did the first time last year and I'm going to wait a couple of years and we're going to go do it again because I think that's a movie that every time you see it, there's it's different. It's like always almost a new movie. Mm. It's so weird. And I think at different points in your life, you see it in a different way. So he was eight last year he when you showed it to him. Year, what did probably, he think of it? He thought it looked really nice. He enjoyed... S- 
I could tell he was like he respected it, but he wasn't quite as into it. There were parts he was really into, uh, but then the like oh for like the next couple of weeks he'd he'd quote it or mm. say remember just like in Vertigo like this or like so it, it stuck with him a bit. Um, but then like I probably when he's thirteen I'll show it to him, and then like little just to see where it hits him in different points how did you present it to him did you present it in a way like dad loves this movie i'd like you to check it out and see what you think or did you just sort of blank slate it and say want to watch a movie oh here's one how did it go it's not even my favorite hitchcock um but like i just was like it's just an interesting one like that because i through film history over time it's been that way it was not liked when it came out um Mm -hmm. but i just told him i'm like hey you know alfred hitchcock because i think he'd seen the birds at that point i had shown him that okay this is one of his films i don't i said it's this long i'd like you to sit and watch it i'd like to know what you think it might not i don't think it's going to connect with you right away but kind of look at it it's a really pretty looking movie but let's just go through it and then i'd like to re watch it again not soon but like in a few years or something and then mm-hmm. we'll see what your opinion is interesting and there and he's like okay and I could I could tell he was a little restless during it, but he he did it and he res- kind of respected it. But I, I could tell it wasn't really his thing yet. But yeah, then we'll revisit it again. Um, You're brave, man. I wouldn't. I mean, my kid's ten. I don't think I would probably even sit down and watch Vertigo with him. Yeah. So I don't I tried, know. And then I, he got to watch. I showed him Psycho a couple months later, and he really dug that. So oh wow. Yeah. He was, I was yeah. Well, he's liking the Hitchcock stuff, so yeah. I was like, "All right, well, we'll get the big ones. We'll yep. throw the big guns out there." But um, I, at some point, uh, like, I want to do that with like Blade Runner because in my life, Blade Runner has been mm. something different to me every every step of the way. Same here, and that's it's just an amazing movie in that fashion. And then Twenty Forty Nine oh, compounded gosh. that, and I, I'm obsessed <laughs> with Twenty Forty Nine. I love it. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's so good. Oh. And then maybe 30 years we'll get some other bite, but he's going to take a stab at yeah. Blade Runner. I was excited because I thought that they were going to, I mean, this also touches on the whole G- Dune thing, you know, inspiring Blade mm-hmm. Runner. But I, they were supposed to be doing this animated series or something with Blade Runner. Mm. And it was teased in the Blu-ray of or the 4K, maybe it's just the 4K, I don't know. But when 2049 came out on disc, it had a special feature thing and like a preview of this animated series. Mm. And I, I have to admit, I'm so busy. There were some I had, shorts, I, I think. There were some shorts, but it was supposed to become a thing. And mm, maybe it was okay. an insert in the, in the case that says, like, coming soon mm, is this okay. thing. And then I remember seeing something relatively recently, some rumblings online about it becoming uh, coming to fruition or something. Okay. But I haven't heard anything since. So you're you're much more dialed in than I am. Have you heard anything about that? No, no, I haven't. Okay. Um, but I wouldn't mind if they did, like, a like an Animatrix-type thing with the Blade Runner universe. Yeah. That would be very cool. Different sure. styles of animation and... Yeah. Little anthology stories. I would definitely, definitely like that. Yeah. yeah. So the twenty forty nine was. Who'd have thought? Yeah. <laughs> who'd yeah. have thought it'd be? I have I the spinner sitting at my desk. Oh. I, the, Very nice. Yeah, I'm such a junkie for that movie. For both those films, for yeah. real. I've written so many articles. I can't tell you how many articles I've wrote written for how many magazines. Listening to the the two disc version of the score for the original Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. That just was my default go-to. I'm in the mountains, the windows open, it's snowing outside. I still have Blade Runner playing as I'm writing or researching, writing, whatever. It's just been this thing throughout my whole yeah. adult, like this whole career is one of the constants is that score. So Amazing. Good. So yeah. good. 
as is Tangerine Dreams for Sorcerer. So we're back on track here. Right, yeah. Uh, So I got a quote when researching this time about this movie that I liked from Friedkin, Mm -hmm. which uh, he he coins it goes with this film, but he said, like, every film is actually three films. There's a film. There's the film you conceive and plan. There's the film you actually shoot. And there's the film that emerges with you in the editing room. Mm. Yeah. And... Uh, this film, though, in the editing room after it bombed here, was recut for overseas distribution. What they, they do differently? Some of them shortened up the prologues. Some of them cut it complete, cut them completely, and some inserted them as flashbacks throughout the movie. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, it could it change your whole outlook on the film? I'd like to see that. I'd like to see the alternate versions of it. Yeah. I wish the Blu-ray here had that on there because yeah. that could, that's another Blade Runner thing. You can look at these different versions and right. it's like, whoa, wait a minute. What? Yeah. Like, huh? And, and, but this could, you could eliminate the beginning and pare it down in a way and it would still be a full length film. Right. If yeah. you cut those into some other thing. I totally get that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. That's what I, mean. I, I love about It's my fascination with editing, which you edit a lot too. You can, yeah. When people are like, "Well, we found this movie in the editing room," people are like, "What are you?" It's like, no, you can really, you can really change perspective. You can change, mm-hmm. like, there's so it's kind of a geeky thing, I guess, but like, you can really change. Like, like I think John Carpenter said, like, he figured out the thing editing. Like, mm-hmm. th- there was nothing like what he set out to do, and then they went back to shoot more with his mind when he was editing or something. I think I read something like that. You might know you. It's wild, man, and 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 you rev- and things are revealed to you as you're cutting it. You you find threads because when you're like for me, doing documentary and having conversations with people all the time, you're lost in the discussion in that moment. You might not even be cataloging what was just said prior, mm-hmm. and then if they revisit on some theme later on, it might not even occur to you that it happened. I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting cutting an interview, and I realize something important has happened. There's some, there, there's, I'm burying the lead in what I thought this was going to be about. Yeah. And because it ends up being about something very different. And a lot of times there's these really remarkable moments that are in there that you don't catch when you're sitting across the room from someone, but you do when you have a chance to reflect back on this footage and go, oh my God, look at that. Yeah. It's really amazing. Editing is absolutely incredible. And I wish I wasn't always 10 projects deep. Right. Like, you want to appreciate the one. Yeah. I wish I could just eight on your mind. Yeah. Totally. I, I wish I could just sit and just really swim long term, have long deadlines so I can spend an eternity with these things. Because when you put them away, it really is, it's kind of like saying goodbye to something. It's kind of sad right. in a way. And uh, that's, that's the other side of the coin when you work on these things, especially doing this documentary where you're watching the movies over and over to find scenes to find little moments and dialogue and whatever. Like we, I pour over these movies hundreds of times as I'm cutting these things together. And then frankly, after I work on them, I don't usually watch them very much afterwards. So it is the end of a relationship in some ways for me. It's like the dances that we went, we had the build up to it. We went to the dance, we had a great night and then we have to say goodbye. And that's kind of how it feels with some of these things. And yeah. uh, so it's an interesting relationship with this stuff. Yeah, the productions like theater, like all sorts of things. Like it's just like a, the biggest, best family ever for a short time, and then it's hey, well, well, now we're over, yep. and we're never going to see each other again. We might not. Yeah. Da, da, da. Everyone, I I love talking to people about that, and that's a question that very rarely ends up in any of these things because I don't think most people care to hear about it. But mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by the moment we that you say goodbye to a film because it's such an intense experience where you're in this small. Like if you're making a movie, mm-hmm. you're somewhere usually removed. 
from your normal environment. Right. You're with these people day in and day out. You're really just living in a, in a, the tiniest city of a hundred people, 50, 30 people, however many people are a part of this thing. You get used to the faces, the personalities, the nightlife and whatever. And then when you're done, the switch is flipped and then you just have to walk away from this family. And everyone tells me that they exchange numbers. They always say, oh yeah, we'll stay in touch. I can't wait to next time you come out to LA, let's get together or whatever it might be. But everyone says it never happens yeah. and they hardly ever see each other again. So it's such a weird thing for actors to have to go through time and again, not only stepping into the flesh of these characters, but also adopting and then abandoning families and over and over and over deep relationships too yeah like when you do like these th- and and it's it's crazy you get so deep for such a short time and then just never like you cut off like there's yeah there's a great moment on like the never sleep again documentary mm-hmm. um where uh mark Patton and um oh what's her name the the girl from the movie that played his girlfriend. Oh yeah. Oh, what's her name? Uh but they the are blonde. Yeah. Yeah. They're switch. They're he's coming in for an interview. His interview. She's leaving, and she, they see each other for the first time since that mm-hmm. movie. It's like, and you can just tell they had, because he fled the country like after shortly after Elm Street too. He was just done with Hollywood, and he disappeared. Like that mm-hmm. documentary found him, mm-hmm. and you just see in their face and their just their exchange that like they had some sort of deep friendship during that movie, and it all came back right then. Yeah, I mean it's just they they left it in the left it in the documentary, but yeah, it's pretty that's cool, pretty intense. These things go. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. So yeah, uh, sorcerer. I don't know if Roy Scheider and the other guys had this relationship, but uh, I'm sure they were exhausted when it was done. At I, least <laughs> I I know Scheider and Freakin had a deep appreciation for each other, but I don't think they might call each other friends. But it was a tough friendship mm. for the two of them. Um, but. Scheider would prove freaking wrong with his uh, you can't be a lead because I mean he would have like a couple years after this all that jazz which is oh a, man amazing performance he was up for best actor yep. um, unbelievable uh, and throughout throughout the next decade he'd lead a bunch of movies he then would go to like lead Sequest DSV on mm-hmm. TV which was a huge moment in television like that was a big deal oh, yeah. that show yeah um, as much as that didn't become like the star trek under the sea they wanted it to be it ran three seasons just like star trek though yeah uh yeah it, it made a mark for sure but i remember that was a big deal roy Scheider's going to be on tv that was a, mm-hmm. a big pitch but yeah so um there's that uh th- this um this movie was apparently at some point in his life stephen king's favorite movie really he wrote mm. a thing about his favorite uh films and this came in number one at that time uh the the exorcist was i believe in that too um was that dance in dance macabre he said that because i know he has a list of movies he recommends but i think it's mostly genre stuff in there okay i i don't know i just was i was doing it and i looked up the article that he uh, i was like i mm-hmm. i gotta make sure this is interesting not some bs or anything but it was a uh, his number one movie and uh something he wrote uh oh. Yeah. Wrote, but, I can see that for sure. Um, and then uh, the Mandalorian season two paid homage to this um, in an episode. Uh, really? What they do? Bill Burr. Uh, just kind of a, they had a truck that they were driving through a jungle, had to get somewhere, an Imperial truck, and they were being attacked. I think it was like a something will blow up if they do something, and a 
these scavenger guys were attacking the truck as they were trying to get it to safety and it was very hmm. sorcerer-esque and it came, it came up and i think someone made like a uh a sorcerer uh, or a Mandalorian poster that looked like the sorcerer poster or oh, something like that. That's cool. And uh, yeah, so there's that. And lastly, fun fact about me, I still to this day have never watched The Wages of Fear, the original film. Um, I haven't uh, seen it either. Interesting. Well, maybe it's best left like this. Maybe yeah, this is I'm, what you I'm need. Playing. Which apparently Freakin said, I just want the concept. I don't want to remake that film, which is apparently what he did here. So mm. that's apparently a very different film, but... I'm so satisfied with this one that... Yeah, leave it be. Yeah, I'm just kind of like, well, maybe someday Wages of Fear and I will cross paths, but I'll just want to watch Sorcerer again. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, there's some things that are that way. Sometimes you don't need the whole thing. Willfully frankly. ignorant there with that, but... Yeah, yeah. let it be what it is. Uh, the, the original miniseries of It, mm-hmm. I remember that when it came out on DVD, it was a dual-sided DVD. Mm-hmm. I think maybe one time I got to the second side. I just didn't even care to see the second half of that story. I was so satisfied with the first. I'm right. cool. I don't need I don't need the rest. There's some TV series I'm like that with. Like, no, I'll stop after season two or whatever. Cause I know it it doesn't it doesn't have the same power that it does. So I'm a big believer in leaving things be. You don't have to be a completist there you go. to get it, you know, to to love it. Watch someone ask me to guest on a podcast to talk about the wages of fear and just destroy me. Someone should. I hope they do. <laughs> so. And then don't watch it intentionally before and just talk about this movie as though this is the same film. See what happened. It was called The Wages of Fear in some other countries. So maybe I could be like, oh, I watched. Yeah. Oh, I said The Wages of Fear on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe. Well, you should do that. You should, or you should challenge someone. Have someone come on. Do that. Find someone who loves that movie. Maybe invite a guest on and say, you have seen that movie. I don't even want to see it. Let's talk about the differences. I think that'd be a really intriguing discussion Maybe. between the two of you. Then you don't have to see it. You can they just sort of- They haven't seen Sorcerer and I haven't seen Wages of Correct. Yeah. That'd but you can t- speak to the story. That'd be kind of a fun versus concept in general with remakes and mm-hmm. book adaptations. So you read the book. I saw the film or whatever. That'd be cool. Oh, yeah. That'd be interesting. Have to find yeah. those people. Hope they're good discussionists. Mm, yeah. Good articulate people. That'd be nice. Mm-hmm. Um, hard to find sometimes, but mm. it's a good idea. I like that. I like that a lot. But well, thank you for turning me on to this. I appreciate yeah. it. It's something that I was completely unexpected, and it was a it was a real joy to to awesome. watch it. I'm glad it wasn't a waste of your time. Um, no, it's good. But the uh, yeah, the funny thing is, now we're on day four. Uh, nobody that I brought on had seen any of the movies I suggested. I I brought to the table, which was I like that. That's, That's cool. So yeah. Yeah, I was like, All that, right. that's fresh takes from people at a different point in their life, mm-hmm. and then that's 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 kind of a neat accident, happy accident, if you think about it, because they're not walking in jaded about something, and in a way, their their fresh perspective lacks the consideration that you've given it over the last few years here. So right. that's cool, and that's I neat. like that they all they've been on they've all people who have been on my show before, and they like know how I am with the movies they bring and they, mm-hmm. you know, so it's been really, really cool week of conversations here. It's nice, man. Um, it's awesome. a neat thing. But yeah, Justin, I appreciate you coming on. Always yeah. giving me your time. You're a very busy person. If you just check out his work, then you'll see and upcoming stuff. You'll see how busy Justin is. Um, and yeah, talking sorcerer, one of my favorites uh, with me. It's been great. Um, yeah. So, and I have, I, so I've honestly been dying to talk about this movie somewhere for in all my years of podcasting, 
I've been done. And here it is. So I that's great. It. I'm honored that you chose me to do it with. Yeah. I appreciate it. Well, that's I appreciate great. You coming on to do it. Um, so uh, before we head out, uh, let people know what you have coming up, where they can keep up with your work and check you out. Uh, let me see. I know that. Um, well, in terms of keeping up with me, I'm on social media. If you look up my name, it's B E A H M. I guess it'll be under the video here, but it's uh, justinbeam.com. We'll keep you up to date on it. You can even subscribe to like an update email thing on there, okay. newsletter thing. So every time a new announcement's up, it'll keep you up. Also, on, but on all social media, it's just my name. Like I said, tomorrow's Blades Deadly Friend comes out on October 12th. The Killer Party, October 26th. That ragtime that we discussed is November 16th. Krampus on December 7th. And then I have Harold and Maud, which was just announced today. That's going to be December 7th as well. And this interesting movie called Norway from Shockwaves, which is one of Vinegar's new sub-labels. Okay. Brad, it's like Brad Henderson's pet project. He's bringing in all these, these international indie genre films. And I edited this stuff on this movie, Norway, which was just so beautiful, so cool. Uh, right just now, landing on newsstands, is the October oh, issue right. of Remind Magazine from TV Guide. And they were kind enough to reach out to me earlier this year to ask me to be their guest editor for this October issue. And so I turned the whole thing into it's all about the Halloween franchise and in new interviews with Carpenter, David Gordon Green on Halloween Kills. And I, I mean, the guys from Trick or Treat Studios talking about the history of the masks. Hmm. We have an interview by Anthony Ferrante, who made all the Sharknado films, friend of mine. He did an interview with uh, Tommy Lee Wallace on Halloween 3. We have, I mean, it's just the Ben Scrivens from Fright Rags talking about the history of Halloween collectibles. Like anyway, he's cool, dude. Oh, he's amazing. But it's just this dense uh, magazine. It's three times the page count is normal. It's available in all Barnes and Nobles. Most, I think, CVS's, Walgreens, Walmart, I think it's going to be in all those. And also at HalloweenRemind.com if you want to order it. It's only six bucks. And it's really a packed thing that can sit on your nightstand. My whole concept was to make it feel like the season and really celebrate these films and give that kind of vintage magazine experience for people again, which I think we, we, we accomplished with it. So that was a tremendous honor to be part of. And that's on stands now. So that's a few awesome. things that are happening. Awesome. Uh, on the Deadly Friend one, is it an urban legend that there's another cut of that movie? Or yeah, uh, yeah, it is because the they they decided to well originally it didn't have really any of the violence most any okay. of the violence that ended up in the final movie the basketball scene was added uh, that mm -hmm. that originally ended very differently and Christy Swanson talks to, about that in the interview that I did with her for that she talks about the changes that were made and how hard that was for Wes when they came and they said they issued the edict like well we need to add a bunch of kills like four kills mm -hmm. or something he's like kills what because there's originally a, like a drama yeah it's like a thriller drama kind of a thing and so i everyone that i talked to i asked mm -hmm. about an alternate cut and i mean short of some of the more dramatic elements that were cut out in favor of or, or you know the the new things cut in to replace a lot of the original dramatic elements. I don't think anything longer exists. I even talked to Charles Bernstein, who's the composer mm -hmm. on the picture. And I said, is there a different cut of this film that you scored? He said, no. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause that's so, the thing that came up when they got announced. And I'm like, well, 
I, I'm sure that, like no, no stone went unturned on that. Like, oh, I we know, try, man. I know yeah. what you, what you got. Like whenever people are complaining that something's not there, I'm like, it might, it's probably not there. Like it's probably doesn't exist. Like, but it's worth, it's worth checking because yeah. like on ragtime, for example, in the inventory, it didn't show that we had half the stuff that we ended up having oh, wow. yeah. in the, in the, in the vault there on breakdown, finding that alternate opening, everyone said, no, we didn't have it, hmm. but they ended up having it. I mean, Paramount's the best about this because I have access to the vaults there, of course. But on Last Castle, which is a Robert Redford, James Gandolfini, and Mark Ruffalo picture that came out, suffered a similar fate to this. Although instead of Star Wars, it was 9-11 that crippled this mm -hmm. movie. It's about a, a military prison where these prisoners wage their stage a revolt led by a general who was kind of unfairly imprisoned there, played by Redford. And he also directed the film. And it the poster, for example, showed two towers in a prison burning, and it was on bill, you know, on marquees and stuff oh, wow. prior to 9-11. The 9-11 happened, so they had to scrap the whole marketing campaign, and then they soft-pedaled it. Anyway, all that is to point to lead us to, there was an alternate ending that was shot. Originally, you see Irwin, his Redford's character's military funeral mm -hmm. was what they had planned, and they shot it. But everyone thought it was too heavy-handed for post 9/11, and so they didn't they didn't oh, okay. they didn't do anything with it. So it sat in the vaults, and I asked, "Well, can we try to see if do we have any of that?" And then it came back that we had everything that they shot on the day, every oh. shot, every angle, every whatever. And so I had the honor of cutting together and assembling this ending. Oh wow! And so now it's on that Blu-ray. So it, so this thing it would have just been in pieces. It would and it never would have existed had we not asked. Yeah. Had I not asked about it. And on uh, Bad News Bears, Jackie Earl Haley mentioned that his dad had a Super 8 camera on set for one day. And I'm like, oh. did that? And after we talked, does that footage exist? He ended up, his parents found it. His wife transferred it. So now it's on the Blu-ray. We got the clearance to do it. So anyway, you just never know what's out there. If anyone ever wants to know, like Event Horizon, a lot of people wanted the longer cut of Event yeah. Horizon. I went to the ends of the earth to try to find that down to having messengers going, picking up videotapes of dailies from people who had some odds oh, and ends, geez. like the writer, um, everybody involved with that film has been on the hunt for this stuff. It's, it doesn't exist anywhere. It just simply doesn't. So I included as much as I could from what has been seen before. Yeah. But w the number one complaint is always going to be, where's that extra footage? It's like, trust me, we are trying. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just that's trust what, me. Yeah. I, it's always like, where's the, why didn't so-and-so interview? I'm like, I bet they were asked. Like, yeah. it's not like they're not going to, you know, like that means they didn't want to do it. It doesn't mean they didn't ask them. Yeah. When I did King Kong 76, which was so packed that it became a two disc, like we went nuts that on that good thing. One. I like that one. Yeah. It, everyone's like, why didn't you interview Jeff Bridges? I'm like, well, at the time he was in, he was in cancer treatment, right. like intensive cancer treatment. And these people are like, oh, I guess you didn't want to participate or didn't even reach out. It's like, you have no idea. Like we try and we have to, but we have to be compassionate in that kind of situation to this guy is going through something a little bigger than participating in a commentary or something. You on can King probably Kong look up his thoughts on an interview or something. Yeah. And you're like, it's yeah. okay. Like, but, but we try. My we favorite is try. you almost got Hanks for, he knows you're alone. That's my favorite. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I almost did. Yeah. And then he, and he was supposed to, but he was shooting overseas. And then when we were supposed to do it, he, it was the day of the inauguration for Biden. And it turned, and then I turn on the TV 
And they're like, yeah, he's not going to be able to do it. I'm like, God, that kind of sucks. I was so crestfallen because of it. <laughs> but then I turn on the TV that night and there he is introducing Biden's speech at the inauguration yeah. thing. And I'm like, whoa, okay. I guess you have a good reason for not participating in this, but he definitely was game for it. Oh, yeah. Wow. So crazy. So crazy. Yeah, and, and Paris Hilton, some things happen that are crazy. Oh, the yeah. Paris Hilton on House of Wax was yeah. nuts. I mean, it's just, you, know, you just never know what you're going to get and who's going to say yes. But you always take every shot. I take every shot that I can. We appreciate you for it. And I look forward to more great stuff coming to yeah, you. Thank from you. you. Like, it's, it's awesome. Thank um, you. All right. Well, uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, not as interesting as Justin's stuff. Brandon Borke, UHD. Uh, written work at whysoblue.com where I review uh, Blu-rays that Justin puts out. Uh, and I'm back again tomorrow. A special guest, author Prez Maxson, as we close out the week with Smashing Pumpkins music video for Tonight Tonight. But until then, stay film positive. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetersshow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.